Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Don Ma in for Kevin today. New findings on the Biden family's finances. Bank records show over $10 million from foreign interests. Find out what's in the newly released records. New House report says a CIA official helped find signatures for a letter discrediting the Hunter Biden laptop story. We bring you the details and why a federal employee would be breaking the law by doing that. The sanctuary city of Chicago declares an emergency due to illegal immigrants. Mayor Lori Lightfoot is laying the blame at Texas Governor Abbott's feet. T-Mobile closes its flagship store in downtown San Francisco. A number of retailers have closed in the area amid skyrocketing crime and drug usage. Now, a preview of a congressional report that's scheduled for release today. A copy of it was obtained by the Epoch Times. According to the report, a CIA official helped find signatures for the letter discrediting the Hunter Biden laptop story. Here's the details. A new congressional report says a member of an internal CIA board helped solicit signatures for this October 2020 letter. The letter claimed the Hunter Biden laptop story has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. CIA analyst David Carians told congressional investigators he was approached by the unnamed member of the internal CIA board, who told him the letter's contents and the qualifiers in it, such as, we want to emphasize that we do not know if the emails provided to the New York Post by President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, are genuine or not, and that we do not have evidence of Russian involvement. After hearing that, Carians agreed to sign the letter. This is critical because federal employees are explicitly barred by the Hatch Act from using government resources to help a partisan political campaign. The Epic Times reports that the unnamed member of the internal CIA board knew the purpose of the letter was to help then-candidate Biden defeat former President Trump. And he wasn't the only one. Others have previously admitted the letter was meant for Biden to push back against Trump during debates, which Biden seemingly did, dismissing the Hunter Biden laptop story during this October 2020 debate. Five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. Nobody believes it except the, his and his good friend, Rudy Gianni. You mean the laptop is now no. another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? And that's exactly be. what... Is this where you're exactly going? what This is told. where he's going. The that, laptop right. is Russia, yes. Russia, Gentlemen, Russia? I want to stay on the issue of race, You okay? have to be kidding. Here Mr. we go President? again with Russia. NTD reached out to the CIA for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. The Biden family and associates received more than $10 million from foreign actors. This includes a previously undisclosed $1 million related to Romania and more from China. Hunter Biden and his associates capitalized on a lucrative financial relationship with the Romanian national who was under investigation for and later convicted of corruption in Romania. The Bidens received over $1 million for the deal. We'll also provide further information regarding the Biden's relationship with China. This includes two individuals the committee is particularly concerned about. One of them, Yi Jinping, had close ties to the highest levels of the Chinese Communist Party and operated a multi-billion dollar energy company with access to large sums of money. House Committee on Oversight and Accountability Chairman James Comer released the records to the public this morning. He described it as a money laundering scheme. It concerns a network of 20 companies created during Biden's tenure as vice president. That was at the same time when he was promoting anti-corruption efforts abroad. The findings are a result of an investigation by Republican House members. The newly released summary accuses Biden of a lack of transparency regarding funds his family received from China, which Biden has previously denied. More trouble for embattled lawmaker George Santos. The 34-year-old first-term congressman from New York was arrested on federal criminal charges. There's a 13-count indictment against him. The charges come in retaliation to an alleged scheme involving fraud, money laundering, and theft of public funds. He's accused of defrauding prospective political supporters by laundering funds to pay for his personal expenses and illegally receiving unemployment benefits while employed. He is also accused of making false statements to the House of Representatives about his assets, income, and liabilities. 
On Twitter, former Santos staffer Derek Myers said he met secretly with FBI agents for the investigation. He admitted to acting as an informant against Santos. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy did not say Santos must leave the House of Representatives, but told reporters yesterday that he would look at the charges. Santos's office did not respond to a request for comment. Outgoing Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot issued an emergency declaration yesterday. The move comes in response to the surge of illegal immigrants bust from Texas border towns. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the story. Chicago has seen the number of new arrivals grow tenfold in recent days. Shelter space is scarce and illegal immigrants awaiting a bed are sleeping on floors in police stations and airports. Lightfoot says Chicago has responded to the arrival of around 8,000 such immigrants since summer of 2022. Individuals and families uh, coming to Chicago, most after being inhumanely and dangerously bust here by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. The mayor says little advance notice was given and there was no coordination. She feels there was no consideration for Chicago's ability to receive the arrivals in a safe, orderly and dignified way. Texas Governor Greg Abbott reacted to Lightfoot's complaints on the busing of illegal immigrants on Fox News. There are more people coming across the border every single day than there are migrants that are in Chicago or New York. Abbott says illegal immigration is not a Texas problem, it's a United States problem. And this is not a Texas problem. This is a United States problem. Uh, And it's the responsibility of New York and Chicago and the entire country to deal with a problem caused by Joe Biden and Joe Biden's open border policies. Abbott stated that border towns will soon be expecting roughly 10,000 border crosses per day. This when President Joe Biden ends Title 42 on May 11th. Title 42 has been used to swiftly expel illegal immigrants at the border to Mexico amid the COVID-19 pandemic. On whether the U.S. is ready for the surge of people expected to come across the border this week, Biden had this to say. But it remains to be seen. It's going to be chaotic for a while. The president says he spent over an hour talking with Mexico's president on Tuesday. We're doing all we can. Uh, The answer is uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, We've gotten overwhelming cooperation from Mexico. Former Immigration and Customs Enforcement Director Tom Holman called the situation at the southern border the largest homeland security intelligence failure since 9-11. Holman believes that Arizona is the next ground zero for illegal immigration and fentanyl trafficking. Meanwhile, Senate candidates in Arizona are distancing themselves from Biden on immigration. Democratic Senate candidate Congressman Ruben Gallego accused the Biden administration of being unprepared to handle the surge of immigrants, while incumbent Senator Kirsten Sinema warned of a humanitarian crisis when Title 42 expires later this week. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The latest bus carrying illegal immigrants from the border arrived into New York City's Port Authority bus station. It comes just before COVID border restrictions end. The black bus carried 44 illegal immigrants into the bus station today, just after 6 a.m. The Biden administration is preparing for a possible increase in already record levels of illegal border crossings. The end of the Title 42 COVID border restriction is expected to attract a new surge. Migrants have been amassing in Mexico this week. The U.S. rolled out a new regulation that will deny asylum to most migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border illegally. The regulation means migrants arriving at the border are ineligible for asylum if they pass through other nations without seeking protection elsewhere first, or if they fail to use legal pathways for U.S. entry. The new restrictions will apply to the vast majority of non-Mexican migrants since they typically pass through multiple countries en route to the United States. In New York, Orangetown, Town Supervisor Teresa Kennedy clashed with residents. The reason? Illegal immigrants being transferred into the town. It's really surprising that the county and the town are getting involved in dictating to business owners, private business okay, owners, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop who you. they could I'm take their, right there. They could take their stop, money I'm from. I'm going to stop you right there. I don't know if you made it at the beginning. We have zoning laws, okay? We have zoning laws, okay? That's all this is about. Okay. I, I'm offended by the fact that you're saying that we are interfering when you have the city of New York opening a shelter well, in our town. <laughs> New 
New York City is busing 30 illegal immigrants to the town today. The town supervisor announced last night that they will accept the transfer after a judge granted a temporary restraining order. Rockland County officials have criticized New York Mayor Eric Adams in recent days for failing to inform them about the city's plan. New York City says the move is part of a decompression strategy as its shelter space runs out and still more illegal immigrants arrive. This past weekend, a Rockland County executive declared a state of emergency as part of an effort to stop the transfer. The temporary restraining order is in effect until Monday. That's when a court hearing will determine if a preliminary injunction will be granted or if the order will be extended. Inflation slows down to 4.9% year-over-year in April. Though this is still much higher than what the Fed wants. U.S. consumer prices increased in April on higher gasoline costs and rent. Underlying inflation remained strong as used motor vehicles prices rebounded. All this could mean that the Federal Reserve keeps interest rates elevated for a while. And earlier, we spoke to a financial advisor to get some tips for how you could protect your money against inflation. Joining me is Brian Coderna, financial advisor and author of the book, What Should I Do With My Money? So we have the CPI number today, 4.9. I think the markets uh, was happy about that. Um, so I'm wondering, from the Fed's perspective, you know, they said they're taking a wait-and-see uh, perspective on incoming hikes, future incoming hikes. So the number that we have today, what do you think the Fed is uh, thinking? Are, are they going to consider pausing? Yeah, hi, Don. Thanks for for having me. And as far as kind of what came out today with the CPI number, I think it was right in line with expectations. Um, So nothing surprising for good or worse. Uh, You know, it's kind of what we saw coming. And with that said, the Fed did speak last week, you know, about possibly pausing the rate hikes, which is, again, kind of what we expected. So it, it wasn't anything that would send the markets really soaring or crashing. Um, I think what we're seeing is what was anticipated. The, the job numbers last week were strong, so the, the Fed still has confidence if they did need to do another rate hike. But we're seeing this is the 10th decline in a row on the CPI numbers, you know, 4.9% year over year. So that's actually the, the slowest rate of increase in the past two years. So they're, they're kind of getting closer to where they want to be. Um, so that's a that's a good thing. I mean, it's um, all in all, you know, it was uh, I don't think really that noteworthy uh, this time around. I think it's important for people to understand how they can uh, protect themselves against uh, high inflation. For example, you know, putting their money in a high interest rate savings account. Uh, but let me get your advice uh, for people who who you think needs to protect their money against inflation. What should they do? Sure thing. So I think if, if you're looking in the, the long term, and usually that's what I'm counseling clients on is, you know, let's not make snap decisions within a few months or even within a year. Let's think about your overall financial plan. And it, we're, we're talking college planning, retirement planning, and we're looking, you know, three, five years, 10 years, decades into the future. The goal there is to beat inflation over extended period of time, which you can do through the stock market, through real estate and the like. Now, when you're actually within, you know, a bit of an inflation event like we've had the past two years, that's another question of, you know, do we want to protect our money? So there's a couple of ways to look at it, whether it's preservation of principle or beating inflation. Now, going forward, so the silver lining in all this is as the Fed has, you know, now we're at a point where if they're saying we're thinking about pausing rates, then perhaps the yields on, on treasuries, on investment grade bonds and the like are nearing what could be the high for a while. And so that's where you may see some individuals get into bonds, you know, get into maybe short-term bonds or money market instruments, high-yield savings, maybe lock in with fixed annuities or CDs where they can capitalize on these rates now. Uh, If they're thinking that, yeah, by the end of the year or maybe in 2024, we'll see it go the other way where we'll be back to having uh, rate cuts. So those are things to kind of keep in mind from like a 10,000-foot view. 
A couple other concepts, Don, would be a lot of people talk about like commodities, for instance, usually fare well during periods of inflation. But remember, that's looking at like when you're really in the heat of the moment, like 2022. We go into 2023 now, the energy sector, you know, is in the red this year. So uh, saying, hey, I'm just going to go into oil and the like uh, has not really paid off. And that could be because there was such a run up, you know, before. So you, you got to look at, at these different frames in time and say, how does it fit into the aggregate rather than trying to capitalize, you know, in, in little increments here and there? Because uh, that type of timing, that can be a bit of a dangerous game. All right. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Don. 89-year-old Senator Dianne Feinstein has returned to work following a long recovery from shingles. Her return gives back Democrats their majority on the Senate Judiciary Committee and their one-seat advantage in the full Senate. However, her longer-than-expected absence attracted criticism, including from within her own party. Some Democrat lawmakers called for her to resign, saying she couldn't carry out her congressional responsibilities. Feinstein missed almost 104 votes during her months-long absence, and several judicial nominations were delayed. She's the oldest sitting senator. In recent years, she has defended her ability to carry out her responsibilities, but she announced in February she would not seek re-election in 2024. T-Mobile becomes the latest retailer to leave San Francisco's downtown area. The city is suffering a crime and drug epidemic that has chased away many big businesses from the area. The phone company's flagship store in San Francisco's Union Square has been permanently closed as havoc continues in the once prominent business district. T-Mobile told SFGate its reasons for leaving were a change in retail strategy. The two-story upscale location broke local price records when it was sold to T-Mobile in 2013 for $50 million. The shuttered property now joins other vacant commercial buildings in the city. Businesses throughout San Francisco have experienced repeated smash-and-grab robberies in recent years, especially since the onset of the pandemic. The plague of shoplifters has cost city businesses millions of dollars in losses. Texas state lawmakers advanced a bill yesterday to raise the minimum age to purchase a semi-automatic rifle to 21 years old. Two Republicans joined Democrats to approve moving the bill to the full chamber for a vote. This move is seen as a small victory for gun control advocates. However, the bill is unlikely to pass the conservative House and become law. The bill has been widely criticized by Republicans and gun rights advocates as infringing on the constitutional rights of law-abiding adults. The unexpected vote came just days after a gunman killed eight people, including several children, at a mall in Allen, Texas. Former President Trump met with a pro-life group to discuss federal abortion restrictions. Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, says she, Senator Lindsey Graham, and others had a terrific meeting with Trump. She said, quote, Trump knows the vast majority of Americans oppose brutal late-term abortions when the child can feel pain and suck their thumbs. She added that Trump expressed that any legislation would need to include the exemptions for life of the mother and in cases of rape and incest. The statement does not specify further. But Graham has introduced a bill that would legalize abortion nationwide during the first 15 weeks of pregnancy and ban it afterwards. An eight-year-old boy has been found after two days lost in the Michigan wilderness. He was separated from his family on a camping trip when he went to search for firewood. He survived by eating snow and at night he sheltered under a log and covered himself with leaves and branches. Temperatures dropped into the 40s at night. He wandered two miles from the Porcupine Mountains Wilderness State Park campground where he was staying with his family. He wore only a sweatshirt and sweatpants. More than 150 people went out to find him searching around 40 square miles. After he was found Monday, first responders offered to carry him back to his family, but he declined and said he would rather walk by himself. Officials say he's with his family and in good health. Searchers have found the belongings of two mountain climbers missing in Alaska's Denali National Park. 
there's still no sign of the climbers themselves. The two hikers in the 30s have, haven't been seen since Friday when they began a climb on a 10,300-foot peak near the Ruth Gorge. The National Park Service says some of their equipment, including two ice axes and a climbing helmet, have been found. They also found their vacant tent site with ski and boot tracks leading up to a small avalanche. Officials believe the two climbers likely fell while climbing high on the West Ridge on Friday. The Park Service says the search will resume when the weather allows. Coming up, Chinese authorities raided the offices of an American consulting firm. They questioned employees and took hard drives. And two top European diplomats say they're seeking not to decouple from China, but to take the risk out of the relationship. We'll have the details soon when we return. And welcome back. Beijing taking aim at foreign consulting firms, and its latest decision is sending a chill through the business community in China. Chinese authorities raided the offices of an American consulting firm called CapVision on Monday. Authorities inspected the company's offices in Shanghai, Beijing, Suzhou, and Shenzhen. They questioned employees and took photos of servers and hard drives of this prominent international company. Here's the full story. Chinese state media saying the nationwide campaign aims to clean up China's consulting industry. Chinese media reports accuse CapVision of tapping officials for sensitive information to help its clients. The raid comes after China revised its sweeping anti-espionage law. The update broadened the scope of what the Chinese regime considers espionage, but it didn't outline where the boundary is between espionage and normal information collecting in business. Two weeks ago, U.S. consulting giant Bain & Company said Chinese police questioned staff in its Shanghai office. That's one month after another U.S. firm, Mintz, saw a similar incident. The company's Beijing office was raided and shut down, with five employees detained at the time. All of them are Chinese nationals. Chinese authorities accused the due diligence firm of illegal information gathering. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce warned last month that the risks of doing business in China are on the rise due to Beijing's growing scrutiny on American companies. CapVision has headquarters both in New York and Shanghai. The company specializes in connecting experts with clients. Over 70% of its employees are based in China. Berlin and Paris aligning their positions on doing business with China. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerock delivered what she termed a common European message along with her French counterpart. You mentioned that you are welcoming the Chinese foreign minister in Paris today. I spoke to him yesterday in Berlin, and here, as there, he hears the same message, the same European message. We do not want a decoupling of China, but a de-risking in our dealings with China. The term de-risking refers to limiting Europe's dependence on China. The two diplomats made the remarks today after a French cabinet meeting in Paris. They urged Beijing to pressure Russia over Ukraine. Barack pointed to China's status as a UN Security Council member, adding the position brings not only rights, but duties as well. The European Commission recently proposed trade curbs on a few Chinese firms. That's part of its crackdown on companies aiding Moscow in its war effort. During his European trip this week, Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang responded. He said China would react strictly and strongly if any sanctions were imposed on the companies. Japan is in talks to open a NATO liaison office, the first of its kind in Asia. The country wants to strengthen its already established relationship with NATO, especially at a time when it faces its own threats closer to home in Asia. Take a listen to part of CNN's interview with Japan's foreign minister. North Korea's uh, uh, intensifying the activities of uh, missiles and maybe the further provocation such as another nuke test uh, might be possible. And also China uh, is a greatest challenge for us. So that's why uh, uh, including all those things, uh, our uh, security environment becoming so severe and complex. 
A NATO liaison office in Japan would mark a significant development for the Western alliance and could deepen geopolitical fault lines. It's likely to attract criticism from the Chinese regime, though, which has previously warned against such a move. Hiashi played down concerns that it would further inflame tensions, saying, I don't feel that's the case. And now turning to Taiwan, China has launched a drone campaign flying around the island. What's the end game? And how does the semiconductor industry change the strategy? Joining us now, Epoch Times contributor, retired Colonel John Mills. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and author of The Nation Will Follow. Thanks for joining me, Colonel. So I was reading your article on the Epoch Times, and it's about China's engaging military pressure against Taiwan. You're labeling the Chinese Communist Party's intimidation towards Taiwan as a crisis. So I was wondering, would you mind just expanding a bit on that? Yeah, thank you, Don. Um, so first and foremost, the Chinese Communist Party wants to beat America through unrestricted warfare uh, without fighting. However, things are not moving fast enough, and either elite capture of people like Hunter or uh, at home uh, because of their serious issues with food supplies, uh, the blank paper uprising. So, uh, and they have been conducting, the Chinese Communist Party is conducting a very aggressive uh, challenge to Taiwan's sovereignty since December. But what I've detected and noticed is uh, when you fly your aircraft a lot, when you use your ships a lot, you have to essentially go into a maintenance period or a maintenance cycle. Things break. Uh, jet engines need to get looked at and uh, looked over. So what I've noticed is they've suddenly pivoted to a very intensive, I call it almost a drone blockade. Uh, so they're not actually blockading, but they are encircling on the east coast. This is very, this is new and different from the tactics they've employed. And they have two major drones that they're using. One that kind of looks like our Reaper, one that kind of looks like the Israeli uh, Heron, which is also used by uh, several European armed forces. Uh, these can be armed. And it, it's unclear whether they're flying armed. Uh, not evidence of that yet. But they're flying to the east, and they're demonstrating an encirclement, an interest in those east coast ports of Taiwan. Most of Taiwan, 24 million, lives in that coastal strip from the top to the bottom on the west coast facing China. Most of China, uh, Taiwan is actually hilly and mountainous to the right or to the east, and uh, they're, they're, they're conducting intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance of those all-important east coast ports and airfields. So the tactic that you just described with the drones, what do you think is China's end game here? What, what does it want to do with that? Well, they're demonstrating intent and resolve. They're sending a strategic message. But they're also really spending time trying to use their, their advanced drones to really collect the intel and map the, uh, the intelligence preparation of the battle space the operational preparation of the battle space on the East Coast, because that's where uh, reinforcements and supplies will be arriving from uh, from America, even from uh, other uh, allied countries, uh, uh, possibly Japan, South Korea, Australia, maybe even India. So those all important East Coast ports, uh, they're trying to fit, they're trying to really examine them and study them. Uh, and and again, these drones can be armed. And so they could potentially take strike action of dropping bombs and missiles uh, on those uh, Taiwanese East Coast ports. Now, just one more thing. I wonder, you know, this reunification narrative, has China become softer on that? Because I understand China is now showing signs that it wants more foreign investment. And for that to happen, you really need to gain confidence. So I want your thoughts on this. If China's, you know, toned down the reunification narrative a little bit. Well, in the psychological operations battle, I would say, if anything, they've learned their lesson from Hong Kong. They lied on Hong Kong, did not meet uh, uh, the Hong Kongers, expected China to uh, adhere to, to the, to the uh, terms and conditions of the transfer, which, which gave them several more decades of essentially self-rule. Uh, it was a lie. 
And I think China uh, was uh, did, did not look well in world uh, world affairs for their thuggishness on on Hong Kong. So I think they're attempting a softer approach. In the end, they want Taiwan, and also what's different now, they want the chip manufacturing plants and the workforce. So they can't just destroy Taiwan; they have to somehow get those chips and the workforce. And uh, that that makes this incredibly complicated. How do you do this without destroying the plants and uh, and harming the workforce, which you want to work for you? Uh, Taiwan or uh, China desperately needs those uh, chips. Yeah, that's a very good point. TSMC adds another layer of difficulty to China's ambitions. Uh, I think that that is a good point. But thank you so much for speaking with me today, Colonel. Don, thank you. An honor to be with you. And the first visit to Hong Kong by a UK minister since 2018. Trade Minister Lord Dominic Johnson is in the city to discuss boosting trade with senior Hong Kong officials. The government has faced criticism from MPs and campaigners for the move. Here's NTD's Jane Werrell with more. Well, Trade Minister Lord Dominic Johnson is in Hong Kong today to talk about increasing business links between the UK and the former British colony, including investment in financial services. This, of course, comes after a highly controversial decision to allow a top Chinese official, Hansen, to attend the king's coronation. Now, Hansen had earlier oversaw the crackdown of civil liberties in Hong Kong. Now, critics see the trade minister's visit as the latest attempt from the government to forge closer links to the Chinese regime. Lord Johnson, however, has said he would call out the violation of Hong Kong's freedoms. He said in a statement, I'm clear that we will not look the other way on Hong Kong or duck our historic responsibilities to its people, and that we will continue to stand up for them, call out the violation of their freedoms and hold China to their international obligations. But Benedict Rogers, CEO of Hong Kong Watch, says that the visit is ill-judged and it's not time for business as usual. Now this news that Lord Johnson is uh, visiting Hong Kong uh, on a trade mission is, um, is further evidence of the government, in my view, moving entirely in the wrong direction. And particularly at a time when uh, China has so blatantly not just violated, but effectively torn up the Sino-British Joint Declaration. Um, we should not be uh, doing business as usual with Hong Kong. We should actually be uh, looking at sanctions and other countermeasures um, as consequences for what uh, China has done to Hong Kong. So I think it's a, a very bad move that he's on this visit. I've certainly seen uh, some comments from uh, people like Sir Ian Duncan Smith, um, Tim Lawton, who's the new chair of the Conservative Party's Human Rights Commission, uh, and I just saw a tweet from Alicia Kearns, the uh, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and all three of them have uh, very clearly spoken out in the same way that I've just done, uh, saying that this is uh, not the right time to be um, doing trade missions and, and pursuing business as usual. In 2020, Beijing imposed a draconian national security law on Hong Kong, which the government has condemned. Now, the former Tory leader, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, told Politico, why is it that we are about to prostrate ourselves in front of a government that treats us like dirt? While Tim Lawton MP said, not a good look, following hard on the heels of the architect of suppression of the people of Hong Kong, being fated at the coronation. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. We'll take a quick break, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Soldiers on Ukraine's southeastern front lines hope for a change in momentum. After months of enduring war, they're ready for a major counteroffensive against Russia. Switzerland conducts its largest military exercises in more than three decades. The drills involve 4,000 troops. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. Ukraine's soldiers on the front lines are anticipating a major offensive from Kyiv. They hope it would shift the momentum as the war has slowed into a battle of attrition. There is always danger here, but over time you get used to it, and all your senses seem to get sharper. Well, you no longer feel the fear that you had at the beginning. 
Artem and his comrades have been on Ukraine's southeastern front lines for months. They watch and wait. They clear away the endless mud and check the machine guns provided by the United States and Germany. Despite the regular thud of artillery and the whirring of a Russian helicopter overhead, things have been quiet lately in these trenches and bunkers dug into the black earth near Donetsk. Ukraine is planning a major counteroffensive in the coming weeks, which it hopes will shift the momentum. We have a place to eat, to sleep. We have a roof over our head. I don't think we need much more here. Once you have the necessities covered, you can sleep, you can eat, and you find yourself in an illusion of safety. An illusion it is. Two of their machine guns killed about 30 Russian troops in a recent attack, the group's commander told Reuters during a reporting trip to the front line. Reuters couldn't independently confirm that. Artem has been based in the Donbass region for about six months. He and his comrades, mostly volunteers, rotate through the trenches, four days on, four days off. The trench cat and her seven kittens help with the mouse problem. The cramped dugouts give shelter from artillery shelling, mortars and weapons dropped from drones. A threat to both sides along all 750 miles of eastern and southern front line. Artem's home city of Chernihiv in the north came under siege soon after Russia's invasion. I woke up in the morning with the sound of explosions and I understood that my city would be surrounded and my parents and my girlfriends lived there. There had to be people that were ready to act immediately and who would think about problems that may develop only later. The 30-year-old soon joined up. Once his loved ones were safe, it became just a job, he says. Alexander is also from Chernihiv city. He's waiting for Kiev to launch the counteroffensive and change the dynamics of a war that has slowed into a bloody battle of attrition. We expect that the counteroffensive allows us to retake some part conquer and hold enemy positions and that our assault units will advance further, encircle troops and maybe take some prisoners. Then we might retake some positions. We'll keep up the defences and attack further until we push them to their borders. Ukraine has vowed to take back all the territory seized by Russia. Artem hasn't been home on leave for some time, but says he'd rather wait till it's over. I don't want to come back here after vacation or go home with a feeling that nothing is over here and that I will have to come back again. Let's hope that some events will speed up with us in the very near future and then it will be clearer when the next time will be that I can go home to see my loved ones. Meanwhile, Switzerland just wrapped up one of its largest military exercises in more than three decades. Soldiers rehearsed fighting, tossed grenades, and fired live munitions to showcase self-defense capabilities. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the nation known for its neutrality. Switzerland's military drills involved 4,000 troops and spread across four regions over nine days. The country's role in European defense has come into focus amid the war in Ukraine. We truly have an army at the service of peace and defense. So it is not an army that is prepared for aggression, but on the contrary, for defense. And it must be effective. This is all that is at stake for our army. Last Thursday, a group of infantry soldiers participated in one of the training exercises. But they didn't know the details until it was underway. So, in this drill, first they don't know where the opponent is. The opponent is simulated, of course, by targets, so they don't know where the targets are. They don't know how the drill goes. They don't know where the checkpoints are. They really arrive in a field that is completely unknown. The drills weren't organized in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but the Swiss military said the war made the exercises all the more relevant. We don't see a big change in the pace of these exercises at such a scale in 2022. But what we do see is that the willingness of our partners and the understanding of the population regarding this kind of drill has greatly changed. Public and international pressure have grown for Switzerland to end a ban on weapons exports to war zones. But some fear this would mark the end of its foreign policy tradition of neutrality. These decisions are made at the federal level. 
We understand that people mix up the need to support a country under attack and the need to keep a place for the aggressor or whoever is designated as such to come talk and find solutions. Switzerland famously remained neutral during World War II, but Europe's bloodiest conflict since then could draw the nation into the war effort. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. More on the Swiss military, the country's soldiers are showing off their Leopard 2 tanks. The armored vehicles have sparked a debate about Swiss neutrality in the current war. At the village on the French border, Swiss soldiers are presenting the Leopard 2 tank. A German arms maker is seeking to buy the vehicles, specifically those that are no longer in use. as to fill the arms void among EU and NATO members as they continue to support Kiev. Berlin has promised that if the tanks are sold, that they won't be used in Ukraine. Swiss law bans supplying weapons to countries at war. But the sale of tanks would be allowed if Parliament approves their decommissioning. Coming up, Europe's new astronaut candidates begin training in Germany. Hear from the candidates themselves about what it's been like. A 3D printed building is under construction in Germany. It's the largest of its kind on the continent. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Welcome back. The first electric boat championship is coming to Europe. A new type of all-electric powerboat is ready to race on the water at full speed. The E1 race series has just tested its new electric foiling race boats in Italy. Testing focused on a redesigned hydrofoil and a speed boost function. The single-seater carbon fiber race bird can reach a speed of close to 60 miles per hour. Pilots will have the speed boost feature at their fingertips, giving a surge of power for 20 seconds. This one's going to be a bit more along the lines of a Formula One car, where you have to be thinking about tactics. It's very powerful. You actually have to be careful in controlling it, because it, this, all of this surge of power at once really does make a difference. Ten race bird teams will include two pilots, one male, one female, a bidding process to find eight host cities for the first three seasons of E1 will start soon. And Europe's new astronaut candidates have begun basic training in Germany. They'll train for about a year at the European Astronaut Center before launching into space. NTD Xander Thomas has the latest on the countdown. The European Space Agency's new astronaut candidates are preparing for launch. They started their training last month at the European Astronaut Center in Cologne, Germany. I'm really happy to be part of it. And uh, all the astronauts, uh, well, I think we are bonding quite well, the new class and the previous class. And uh, we are getting loads of advice from them, which will prove very useful in the future. Marco Sieber is a candidate from Switzerland. As you can imagine, it was quite a roller coaster, so a lot changed. Um, there was, um, yeah, basically a whole new career. Um, in front of me and it was actually quite exciting and feeling like a big adventure that starts now. More than 22,000 candidates applied to the ESA for the training program. Just five were selected. For Rosemary Coogan, it's also been a whirlwind experience. The past five months have completely flown by, to be honest. It's hard to believe that since November we've changed jobs, changed countries, I've said goodbye to colleagues and friends in Paris, but I'm so excited to be here. All five astronaut candidates have previous experience in different scientific fields. Their specialties include astronomy, physics, neuroscience, and medicine. We also had biology lectures, theoretical, as well as biology practicals. We also had some briefings about um, the use of the pool, which is the neutral buoyancy facility. Those who make the cut need to know how to apply what they learn in space. Until now we had a lot of theoretical classes, a few uh, hands-on as well, but I'm really looking forward to uh, the sessions, to practical sessions where we will put into practice what we have learned. Last year's astronaut recruitment drive was the ESA's first in over a decade. 
The ESA's 22 European members recently announced a 17% budget increase. That's $18 billion over the next three years. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Astronomers using the James Webb Telescope have spotted a new cosmic surprise. The Webb Telescope recently gave them an up-close look at the first asteroid belt ever seen outside of our solar system. They focused on Fomalhaut, a young bright star located 25 light years from Earth, and the warm dust that encircles it. This detailed image shows three massive rings of dust around the star, extending out 14 billion miles, or 150 times the distance of the Earth from the Sun. Fomalhaut's two inner rings didn't appear in previous images taken by any other observatories. They were likely created from the debris left behind as larger bodies such as asteroids and comets collided. Then the dust was shaped into belts by the gravitational influence of what the researchers believe are hidden planets that orbit the star. They say studying these dust belts can help unlock secrets behind how planetary systems form. A study about the findings was published Monday in the journal Nature Astronomy. In southern Germany, Europe's largest 3D printed building is under construction. The developer says only two workers are needed to oversee the project. A giant robot is stacking layers upon layers of concrete. When completed, the structure will house a computer server center. The building will stand 180 feet long and over 30 feet wide. The entire construction would take an estimated 140 hours. The developer says it may only need one person on site in the later phases. He believes 3D printing holds a bright future, but it won't apply to everything. We have chosen a very special architecture here, which resembles a curtain. There are also 18-degree overhangs, which is impossible to build with conventional means. For such buildings, the 3D printer is destined. But it's clear that not everything being built in the next 20 years will come from a 3D printer. This construction group is currently evaluating other building projects using 3D printed technology. And next, we look at a luxurious palace made of frosting. An Indian cake artist has set a world record for making it a reality. This white cake comes in 10 feet long, over 4 feet high, and nearly 4 feet wide. It weighs over 400 pounds. London's World Book of Records gave it the honor of being the biggest vegan royal icing structure. The artisan said she was inspired by various palaces and monuments in India. If you look at the structure, you'll get glimpses of, you know, monuments and palaces. And all the windows and doors and the domes are inspired from various Indian palaces. And so the thought was actually creating something majestic, uh, which was, uh, uh, you know, a tribute to Indian architecture. Deb achieved an earlier record for making a vegan cake in the shape of a Milan cathedral. With pristine beaches and crystal clear waters, Great Keppel Island looks like a perfect vacation destination. For two young students, it's where they attend school. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on education in this remote location. School days look a little different on Great Keppel Island. They're a mix of online learning, a swim in the ocean, and new education methods. Amy Harris's daughters are part of Great Keppel Island's population of 20. Her husband, Kelly, is a manager at one of the island's hotels. Amy helps him with big events, such as weddings. Kelly, uh, my husband, is a manager, so he's got a huge job, which he doesn't help do any of the schooling, but and then I work full-time planning the weddings. The girls have lived here all their lives, and that didn't change when they started school. So they do probably about an hour to two hours online with a teacher from the distance ed. In between there, they've got lessons that they do after-school activities often involve putting lessons into practice. We do a lot of our counting, uh, whether we're collecting stuff, collecting trees, collecting sticks, shells, um, learning to write in the sand. Of course, living off the grid isn't always paradise. Accessing fresh water and an internet connection can be challenging. It gets challenging sometimes, and there's times where I've wanted to pack up and go back to the mainland, but things get easier and the girls get a little bit older. It makes it a lot more, yeah, easier to see the future in raising them here. Harris says it's all worth it in the end. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you often feel tired or down, 
it's time to take steps to lift your mood and elevate your energy. Here's NTD's Gina Marie with some advice on strong mind and body. The past few years have taken a toll on many people. We may be suffering from emotional stress, fear, anger, unexpected lifestyle adjustments, and feelings of uncertainty and loss. Restoring and revitalizing our energy and health is key. Let's start by looking at food, mood, and energy. Food is your fuel, and your food choices are critical. They affect your mood, energy levels, and energy expenditures. You can better manage your mood if you make wise food habits and choices. Here are seven easy ways to do just that. Number one, eat regularly to help maintain steady blood sugar levels. Foods that release energy slow are best. Examples include soaked nuts and seeds and whole grains. Declines in blood sugar levels can lead to irritability, depression and tiredness. You'll want to avoid sweets, alcohol, soft drinks and other sugary foods. Number two, eat a wide variety of fruits and vegetables daily. They are rich in vitamins, minerals, antioxidants and other nutrients. They provide fiber and water to help maintain energy. Number three, grab the greens. Dark leafy greens, wheatgrass, spirulina, and seaweed are packed with energizing nutrients. Number four, eat sufficient protein. Everyone's protein needs differ. You can get an estimate of what you need with an online protein requirement calculator. Include protein at every meal for sustained energy and a balanced mood. Number five, watch your caffeine intake. Although caffeine can give you an energy boost, it may make you feel depressed, anxious, and unable to sleep. Number six, stay hydrated. Insufficient water intake can lead to tiredness, irritability, constipation, and dizziness. Number seven, enjoy healthy fats. Omega-3 and omega-6 essential fats are a big plus for energy and mood. Aim for oily fish, walnuts, almonds, avocados, eggs, and seeds, especially pumpkin, chia, flax, and hemp. Next, you'll want to add some easy activities to your daily life. For better sleep, mood, and energy, sneak in some extra exercise. Skip the elevator and take the steps whenever possible. Park further away from your destination, take stretch and exercise breaks throughout the day, and sneak in brief walks before breakfast and at lunch. Exercise while watching TV or movies, and stretch before getting out of bed. And finally, let's look at how movement helps mood and sleep. According to the Sleep Foundation, people who engage in regular exercise are less likely to experience insomnia and other sleep problems. A great benefit of exercise is that it can relieve symptoms of depression and anxiety. This is because it releases feel-good hormones. And that's all for today's program. We're so glad to have you with us. I'm Don Ma, NTD News. Thank you.